Well, hello again. This is Dick Foth with stories to make sense of it all. And if we ever needed making sense of it all, these are the times, aren't they? This is the third podcast in a trilogy that started a few weeks ago with my friends Kirk and Leah Foster. He's a U.S. Airborne Army Ranger, and we talked about this theme that life is a journey, but it is also a fight. And that's the theme we're continuing in this podcast. And then last week, we talked with Kirk's mom, Elaine, who's a second grade school teacher. We talked about the fight for the minds of young children and how to help them embrace the joy of learning. In this last podcast in this series, I want to take a 30,000-foot view about the essential idea of fighting for freedom. What is that? What is freedom? What is that idea of liberty that's embedded in the heart of our nation, and I would submit embedded in the heart of humankind? So, over the years when you've gone to U.S. history classes, you've heard the great quote of Patrick Henry in the Revolutionary War, give me liberty or give me death. You hear songs and quotes of phrases like, let freedom ring. But where does the idea of liberty come into play in the story of our nation? 50 years after the founding of the United States, there was a French nobleman and a, and a, a political scientist who came to the United States. His name was Alexis de Tocqueville. And he ended up writing a two-volume work over the next year or two entitled Democracy in America. And one of the things he came away with as he talked to Americans and, and what made Americans Americans was their sense of drive for freedom, not just any old kind of freedom, but individual freedom. And what did it look like and how did it play out? And he had some concerns about that. And he wrote about it in that volume, which I hold in my hand, again, called Democracy in America. So in this podcast, I want to talk to two generals. One is a former attorney general, and the other is a retired three-star general. And just get their inputs and their thoughts on this concept of liberty and freedom and what we fight for and how we fight for it. As I record this podcast, I have been friends with John Ashcroft for 70 years. Both of us now on our 79th trip around the sun. But this recording took place a couple of years back when he came to the Air Force Academy to speak at baccalaureate in May of that year. And afterwards, we drove over toward the Garden of the Gods and I teed up this conversation. So here it is, and I'm just asking him about liberty. Liberty is um, something that God built into creation, that uh, we were designed to make free choices. Um, and uh, I think God had plenty of command creatures, control creatures in the angelic hosts, uh -huh. but he creates people to make choices. They have to choose for or against God. They have to make choices, and those choices are consequential. So while liberty, I think, is the core value of the American culture, I think it's a core component of human existence and that people flourish in situations where they have freedom 
and they don't in situations where they are controlled or they're deprived of freedom to be what God intended them to be, to be innovators and creators, uh, things like that. So my sense is that liberty, yes, it's an American value that's expressed profoundly here, but I think it's more than that. I think it's part of creation. So so when Alexis de Tocqueville, this uh, this sociologist, comes from France in the 1830s to study prison reform, and he starts interviewing Americans about what they consider their their highest value, his distillation of that essentially is that freedom is the is the is, as you put it the core value, but even more than that, individual freedom is the core value. So you're saying that freedom both as a God-given component of who we are is is at the heart of who we are, but it's also at the heart of the nation. Yeah, well, if you'll look at our history, it was Patrick Henry who famously said, give me liberty or give me death. And the folks yeah. who dumped dumped the tea into the harbor at New York called themselves the Sons of Liberty. Uh And the Declaration of Independence talks about, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you think about those three things, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, well, obviously, you don't have... Life, yes, we're alive, but meaningful life requires liberty, and liberty is a means to pursue happiness. It's another description of it. The core of those that triumvirate of values expressed in the Declaration is liberty. And uh, I think that's what has made America special. I think it's the reason the French sent us a statue named the Statue of Liberty. They didn't name it the statue of even democracy. They'd seen what a runaway democracy intoxicated on just majoritarianism that resulted in the deprivation of life and liberty for a whole lot of people at the guillotine. So majoritarianism, school me on that. You mean that the majority, by a vote of any kind, a referendum, can determine what what is or what isn't? Is that- yeah, I think people who founded this country were very much afraid that the majority would deprive individuals or minorities of their capacity to exist and make free decisions. And if you look at our Constitution, it's really a series of safeguards against a runaway or intoxicated majority. We have divided the lawmaking system into the the House and the Senate, and they can't even act without the President of the United States. So there's fragmentation of governments designed to protect against an overreaching majority, a democracy that begins to act like some of the overseas democracies do. They discriminate against minorities. I, I think now we are in a little, we're in trouble in our country because when a new regime appears overseas, we ask them, were you democratically elected? And if they say yes, we say, we're good. okay, yeah. yeah, we'll recognize you and we'll fund you. That's the first two things we do. Democracy, it should be understood, is a process. Liberty is an outcome. And so our, our constitution fragments government to keep stuff from going too far. And then most of the states didn't want to ratify the Constitution unless there was a Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights said, now look, these are freedoms here. And these are liberties. And we want these safeguarded specially. And you can't do away with them. 
And the last of those is that the federal government has no right to do anything that is not specifically authorized to do in the Constitution. So on that note, uh, I asked John, just, just give me one sentence, one phrase that you feel expresses what liberty really is. Well, liberty is the freedom to act with consequence. And by and large, we should inhibit it only when it is going to be an injury to someone else. When you say act with consequence, what do you mean? Well, there's so much today in our culture that says doesn't matter what you do, it you won't have any consequence. You know, yeah. what happens in Las Vegas stays, stays in Las in Vegas. Stays in Vegas, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, as if if there's a, a right to do things that you don't have to accept the consequences of. Right. That's not freedom. But you have a thought about that. You have yeah, a, well, the absence of consequence is not freedom. The absence of consequence is meaninglessness. Hmm. For instance, if you want to act, say you want to hit a nail and you want to drive it in. But if you can't be assured that when you hit the nail that it'll go in instead of fall out or bend over or disappear, you you can't count on a consequence. You can't even construct a simple box. Or if you're holding something and you want to drop it. If there's no predictable consequence, if there are not laws of nature that govern consequence, you let go of it and it stays there in midair or it goes up or goes sideways. What what freedom is there? What value is your liberty to make a decision about whether you seize it, you cling to it or you let it go? You know, a while back, a few years back, a young man asked me, what is your do you have a fear as you age? And now here we are. Two 75-year-old geezer, is that the word we want to use? Oh, yeah, that's the geezer. That's We've entered geezerdom, and we're probably <laughs> see, well into the geezerdom. See, I say we're just into the fourth quarter, and if you look yeah. at March Madness, a lot of good stuff happens in the fourth yeah, quarter. Yeah, it does, but, but I say that when you get to be our, our age, you're probably in the two-minute drill. <laughs> We're in the two-minute offense. That's the difference between the basketball fan and the football fan. Yeah, you know? there you go. The two-minute offense is you better get it done quick because time is running out. Clock is ticking. So this young man said, what is your greatest fear? If you have a fear as you age, and sort of I just blurted out the fear of being inconsequential. So being the kind of person I am, maybe a wee bit thick-headed, I just pursued the idea of actions and consequences. There is no such thing as action without consequence. Yeah, okay. And uh, you cannot, the way you can avoid consequence is to avoid acting. If you don't act, you won't have a consequence. If you don't speak, you won't have a consequence. And I think what God says to us is in creating us, he says, be very careful what you do because you have great consequence. Mm. And frankly, that gives dignity to humanity that you couldn't find in any other way. If it, was po- if it were possible for us to act without consequence, mm-hmm. we would be meaningless. What if we were to, all the things we were to do, all the efforts we were to make were not? So God gives us consequence, and theologically, the invitation of people to participate in the redemptive mission of Jesus right. by forgiveness and by working for restoration and for healing relationships, and literally for healing, period, like doctors. And Think of all the great and noble things that happened because God has given us the idea of consequence. Uh, We shortchange ourselves if we think we can do uh, great things with consequence, but if we do demeaning or immoral things, they won't have consequence. 
that's a fabrication and a myth that leads us to a self-destructive idea that if you don't have consequence, you're meaningless, you're worthless. I know people who are old, who are feeble, who have consequence because they either write letters or some of them are prayer warriors. Yeah, yeah, they pray. And uh, they have consequence. I believe that the creator of the universe responds to the acts of individuals, including prayer. And prayer itself can be very consequential, not only for the person praying, but for the object of the prayer itself. Let Let me circle back to something just for a minute. You used a word that in our 67 years of friendship, I've heard you use a bunch of times in a bunch of different settings, and I want you to elaborate on it. We'll just take a couple more minutes here. The word you used was noble. This, uh, this little five-letter word that, I, that I've heard in a number of different um, conversations, speeches, some writing, um, t- talk to us about, one, where you got that word, and to why it has meaning for you. <laughs> because it must. I mean, you, you I used to hear my father pray okay. in the mornings to begin the day. Okay. And he would ask that God would help us to do things that were noble. And uh, nobility is uh, hard to define, but I, I think it, it is doing things that transcend your own self-interest, doing things mm. that are the in the interest of the community, that godly things that would elevate people and enrich people rather than to devalue them. Mm. Um, When people decide to put others in front of themselves, to to borrow from Scripture, to think of others as better than themselves, Mm -hmm. this is Christ-like. You know, what could be more noble than to offer yourself as a sacrifice for other people so other people wouldn't have to suffer? In speaking at the Air Force Academy Baccalaureate this morning, I commended them for, and other members of the military, for being willing to place themselves between disaster and their fellow men, between aggressors and innocent citizens, between evil and uh, their neighbors. Um, Jesus set himself between an eternity of meaninglessness and and devaluation and 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 to protect people so that they could be reunited with the father how could something be more more noble than that that human existence somehow reaches its intended purpose because someone decided jesus decided that it was more important to do that than to save his own existence so just to wrap this conversation with John up, not many of us uh, are born into royalty. Not many princes, not many people like that. But all of us have a shot at nobility, at least according to the definition that John just gave us. And uh, John talks to a lot of young people, even in his uh, two-minute drill years. And so I asked him about that. Here's what he said. People, young people ask me, what do they recommend? I, I, I always say, aim high. You may not hit what you're aiming at, but you'll hit something up high. <laughs> if you aim low, you probably won't hit what you're aiming at either, but you'll hit something down low. And on that fun uh, Air Force-themed note, I'd like to introduce you to an Army guy. 
a friend of mine for now 25 years. General Mick Kicklider was born in Georgia, went to university there, ended up in the Army for almost four decades, if I have it correctly. And I met him in 1994. He had left the uniform service in 1991, was just wrapping up a sequence of events that was asked for by the president and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to commemorate the 50th anniversary of World War II. And there were a series of things that were going on, and I met him then, in 1994. He is a a much-decorated and highly respected uh, military man, but from 91 on, he served up until 2010 in and around the Department of Defense, State Department, Veterans Affairs, whole range of things too long to list here. His last assignment at the Department of Defense was Inspector General. And he was so kind to have lunch with five of us, four young men, uh, one of which, Rich Flores, is the producer of this program and is sitting right over there. And then three of my nephews, John, Jesse, and Jason, all in the digital world. And uh, they helped create the ideas for this podcast. So grateful to them. But here we are at a diner in Arlington, Virginia, uh, about 18 months ago. So you'll hear the clatter and all of that in the background. But if you're going to have a talk, might as well talk over food. So we were talking about how purpose works or how life works and the importance of purpose in it. And here's his response. I think it's, uh, it has to do with purpose. What, what is your purpose in life? And, and, and for a long time, I thought my purpose was to be a soldier. And that was, that was what driving me. But I didn't realize in some number of years, I'm going to take that uniform on, and I'm going to hang it up in a closet, and that's over. But my faith in the Lord is never going to be over. And my love of my family and my relationship is never going to end. And my relationship with many of my friends are never going to end. I, I had my purpose all mixed up. My purpose was not to be a soldier. My purpose was to serve others. I just, I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't know that my life was supposed to be one of service. But wherever it is, it's, it's to serve. But first, it's to serve my Lord, and the second is to serve my, my wife and my children, my grandchildren, and, and my community and my friends. And also, I chose a profession, kind of accidental, that was a life of service. At that point in the conversation, we transitioned from talking about Mick Kicklider, the soldier, to one of the roles that he served in in the early 90s. For four plus years, he led the charge to commemorate the veterans and the sacrifices of World War II. And it was a four-year effort in lots of places around the world. And how he frames what that meant to him and what it was about was very helpful to me. Our goal was was to thank and honor the veterans of that war and their families 
and especially families who had lost loved ones or they had loved ones that never came home, they were missing in action. And so that, that was our goal. It was also to reach out to our allies and offer to, to do things with our allies, but remembering that our adversaries from that period were now some of our strongest allies. And we wanted to reach out and tell them what we were doing and, and let them know that this was not a celebration. This was a commemoration. So you can appreciate that if something is a commemoration and we are looking back at lives lost and courage to fight for freedom, that there's a lot of emotion connected to that. And one of the illustrations that the general gave was particularly touching. As preparations were made in 1994 for the 50th anniversary commemoration at the site of D-Day on Omaha Beach in Utah and Gold and Sword in Juneau, he was engaged with the president, President Clinton and his wife, Hillary, and they were on an aircraft carrier making preparations for the next day. And he described it this way. The night before, after the air jump, I had flown out to the aircraft carrier to kind of meet with President and Mrs. Clinton and discuss with them what, what, the, what they were going to do the next day. And, I, and after I finished describing what the events were, you know, what was going to happen in the morning, this event, and it would end, our last event would be at Omaha Beach after lunch. And I started leaving the room and David Gergen was in there. And he said, uh, Joe Kicklider, now tell the President and Mrs. Clinton what, what tomorrow is really going to be like. And it kind of caught me by surprise, and I said, I had to think for a minute, and I said, well, to tell you the truth, tomorrow's probably going to be one of the most emotional days that you've ever been through. Because I've been through a number of these ceremonies, and they are extremely powerful, with all these great American veterans there, and, and you're wanting to honor them. And I, I said that this is probably going to be one of the most difficult days that you've ever been through. In fact, I think you'll probably find it hard to get through tomorrow. And so, and I, I left, uh, and I left and got on my helicopter, got on a helicopter, flew back, and we got ready for the next day. General Kicklider then went on to describe the program uh, on Omaha Beach, where they selected as part of the program a World War II veteran. They always wanted a veteran to speak. And this is how he described it. The guy that we selected was a guy named Joe Dawson. And uh, Joe Dawson was a young uh, guy. I don't know what his profession was, but he was a young guy. Came out of Texas, uh, and uh, he was a captain uh, on the beach in the 1st Infantry Division. And it, they were, the troops were really getting pounded on the beaches, and we were, the losses were just terrible. General Bradley had written a message that, you know, we won't have to withdraw the troops off of Omaha Beach and reinsert at Utah Beach. But this young Army captain named Joe Dawson took a platoon and they took Bangalore torpedoes, which is just pipes of explosives, and they, without being detected, they ran them up all the way up to the top of the beach underneath the Constantina wire and they blew the wire 
and before the smoke and the sand had settled, this platoon was at top of the cliff. I mean, top of the dunes, sand dunes. So that was the break-off of the beach. So this is the guy that we asked to come back and introduce the president. And what a great guy. And he talked a little bit about what it was like to be at, at D-Day that day. And then uh, he, um, he introduced the president. And the president, as I recall, it took him three times before he could compose himself to be able to say a word. He, he stepped up and he got choked up and he stepped back and he stepped up. And then he stepped back and then he stepped up again and then he started talking. And uh, at the end of uh, the chaplain opened and the chaplain closed and at the end we had a flyover and we had all vintage aircraft from that era and all modern aircraft and they come flying right over the cemetery and that would just take your breath away almost. And then we had 17 ships at sea and they all passed in review by the cemetery. And the last ship to come by was, uh, was the aircraft carrier. And there was a young woman and I can't remember her name but she was very young and she came up to me and she said, General Kicklider, when, when you briefed the president last evening, I had no idea what you were talking about. And tears coming down her eyes, and she said, I understand exactly what you meant now. So as the conversation continued, we just had a wonderful time going a lot of different directions, and we came toward the end of the time. And one of my nephews, Jesse, who who describes himself as one of those millennials, uh, is married, 15 years, the father of two, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, works in the advertising industry in Southern California, framed the juxtaposition of how younger people try to grapple with the uh, love of America and its institutions. And Jesse is a very sharp and critical thinker. And this is how he framed it to General Kicklider, when he, as a young man, you know, this is now almost two decades ago, this is how he framed it when he described watching that awful morning of 9-11 as the planes flew into the towers in New York City. And I was not watching reality. I was watching a movie. It was a movie. Yeah. It wasn't real. You mean in your mind? In my mind. It just There's just no way that was real. We were especially on the West Coast, too. Yeah. You know, and at the moment, they're supposed to cut away, and Bruce Willis is punching a guy in the face, not yeah. news or screaming. or. And there's a lot of... And I don't think this is a new thing. I think forever, probably, generations have complained about each other. I think that's just a part of generations. That's what they do. But there is a struggle because... There is a lot of stat about anxiety. How could this be the most anxious generation ever when you look back at the hardship, especially that World War II generation? But you have a group of people that we kind of like, millennials especially, we like to complain about them. There's like, millennials are the most entitled and they all got participation trophies and you know they want their jobs to give them everything and they don't want to do anything for it and they're weak and they're soft and they need to grow up. They're telling us we have to stop saying all these words and doing all these things and they're bossing us around and they haven't done anything for it. But 
starting when that plane, mostly when that plane flew into that tower, all uh, institutions fell away. Any sense of security or safety or America is the greatest country in the world and it's the best place to live, that was the first chalk off that. So any flag-waving, grateful people saved this place for us kind of didn't matter once somebody could just find some other way in. If you were going to take pride in our, our military strength and their ability to defend us, well, you just maybe took a little bit of power from that institution. And we saw, uh, we saw the banks fall. We saw the Catholic Church, even if you weren't Catholic, we saw maybe the biggest symbol of the global church. We saw rampant corruption. We saw it exposed that they were, you know, that, that priests were acting inappropriately and with children. So through a major formative time of our lives, we've just seen all these institutions that everyone would like to accuse us for not holding sacred. We've seen them not be sacred. And not to get, even get into the politics of it, but even if you look at something like the Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter thing that's happening with police, it's just there, there is no reason to trust any institution. And then we've got an election that happened that people feel these people cheated or these people cheated. So they're just all things that we should have trust in, that we should hold sacred, that we should care about sacrificing for, it's hard to see why to do so, because we weren't responsible for the banking crisis, and we weren't responsible for the for the fall off on education, being able to provide you a job, and we all had debt and went back to live with our parents. So those aren't things we were responsible for, and then it's a world we're handed, and then kind of told that we're good for nothings, who were spoiled. How do we do hard things again? How do we have the fortitude to do the hard things? Income, inequality, I mean, we've got a bunch of things coming to us now. A new world of what security looks like, a new world of could we restore some order to our political system so everyone's doing their fair share. These are gonna be very hard things to accomplish that are gonna take everyone who all feel pretty like probably individually defeated and when if you don't trust an institution, why are you gonna participate? What a terrific question for a young person to ask. How are we going to do the hard things? And how daunting that must feel. I was um, fascinated, I think would be the right word, by Mick Kicklider's response. I appreciate your comments, and I, I know the validity of them, but I don't have that same outlook. I, I don't think these are the worst of times. I, I, I think, uh, I think I, I'm optimistic about the future of this country, and I'm optimistic of the world, but I know that, I know that we've got a lot of tests to come, that are coming. I'm, I'm not a political guy. I, I've, had, uh, I've had two uh, Two political appointments that had to be Senate confirmed. Yeah. Uh, it just so happened I had, I've had high-level positions in several administrations, and I've worked close with several presidents. But I had two Senate-confirmed positions, and they both were, they both were in a Republican. Well, were in the George W. Bush's administration, and um, and the Senate was controlled by the Democrats and I was nominated by a Republican president. 
And, and yet at my hearings, the people who come to testify for me were sitting Democratic senators. So that was, that was helpful. But um, so I, I'm, I'm not, in fact, when I was asked, uh, they said, what party are you? And I said, I'm a soldier. And they said, soldier, what does that mean? And I said, well, I've served my country all my life. They said, well, can you support this president? I said, was he duly elected by the people? And they said, yeah, that I can support him. That's what I've, all my life I've, I've participated in, you know, giving the right for, you know, people to be duly elected and, and, and we support whatever that government is. So we're listening to this conversation that is almost two years old uh, at a time when the country is in upheaval at a number of different levels because of COVID, because of the kinds of things that have gone on with regard to injustices. And as we reflect on that, we again look at what freedom means and how institutions work within that framework. And as we go forward, I'd like to take a closer look at that. But to wrap this program up, I'd like to come back to what General Kicklider said about some of the young people that he teaches. He teaches leadership at Mercer University in Georgia. And here's what he said about that. Now I'm teaching leadership. And they want to be good leaders, the ones who come to the program. I mean, they want to lead. They want to know how to be a leader. I mean, they're, they're, they're really serious about it. And I've taught adult classes where people are coming to get their MBAs that are out in the workplace. They want to be good leaders. And uh, so, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't know the, I don't know the millenniums like you do. But what I do know, I'm not discouraged. I don't, I don't, I don't see them being spoiled or... In, in fact, I've got, a, I've got two granddaughters who graduated from college this year. And I'm, I'm very optimistic about, about their outlook and what they want to do in life. So our thanks to uh, John Ashcroft and Mick Hicklider for their thoughts, their insights. Hopefully you have food for thought. And it's so important in these days that we reflect on how liberty is achieved and how it's maintained for everybody across the land. I'm so grateful to have been born here all those years ago (laughs) and to be around for a while yet. Let me wrap it up this way. There was a young woman that graduated from Wellesley College about 10 miles west of Boston in 1880, English major. She went on to become an instructor at that college. Her name was Catherine Lee Bates. And around the turn of the last century, she had a chance to take a trip across the United States. And as she rolled across Kansas, she saw what she called amber waves of grain. And she got to the Rockies, and those were purple mountain majesties. And and she ended up standing on top of Pikes Peak, which is about 120 miles as the crow flies, as we say, from where I sit at this moment. And she penned a song. It took some years for it to be published. She started out calling it America. And the first line goes like this. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties 
across the fruited plain. America, America, God shed his grace on thee as the U.S. Army Brass Quintet plays us out. Let's be thankful this day for the freedoms we enjoy. Even be thankful for the challenges we face that cause us to look at what it takes to maintain freedom for everyone. God bless.